I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 to 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Heavenly Father, we bow before you now asking that you speak to us through your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Solomon has been doing a lot of visiting traveling, as it were, stopping at different places. You may recall chapter 4, he visited the courtroom, he visited the marketplace, the highway, he visited the palace, and now in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, he visits the temple. And with that visit, we now make a shift in what he's doing. Up to this point, Solomon has simply been observing He's just been watching, kind of showing us the way the world is as he observed what was going on in the courtroom, in the marketplace, in the highway, and so on and so forth. But now, in chapter 5, he tells us what to do in light of all that observation, everything he was observing. And what he does is begins with the temple. He begins in the house of God. This is Solomon's temple. We read about it. In 1 Kings, we're told in the 408th year, 80th year, that is, after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. Solomon's temple. And so Solomon is here at this temple in all its splendor, this spectacular building that he built for the Lord. And worshipers go there to worship the Lord, to pray, to make vows, to make sacrifices. They're praising and glorifying God. And Solomon's there observing them, but he also speaks out this time. And what you learn when you listen to his speech is that you realize that all they're praying uh, with all the appearance of doing exactly what they should be doing, praying and worshiping the Lord, doing what they were commanded, they're really not glorifying God at all. Uh, they actually go there, do their business. Uh, they left the temple and they left the sacred assembly actually in worse condition than before they entered. They were robbing God of his glory and the reverence and honor that is due his name. 
See, as you read our passage, you recognize that Solomon here paints this picture of people coming and going from the temple, praising God, trying to glorify God, praising him, uh, praying to him, sacrificing. They're making vows in the temple. And, and he, he shares this picture for us so that we can learn a lesson, so that we can be warned. It's a warning we need to hear this morning. See, don't let the fact that Solomon visits the temple other than St. Stephen Church confuse you that you cannot fall into this trap. This exhortation, this warning is for you and me as well. And the warning he gives concerns how do we approach God in worship. Look at verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps, or the New King James, walk prudently. It's a reminder of the sacredness of approaching God. You remember Moses, the burning bush. God calls out to him, Moses, Moses, and Moses says, here I am. And, and then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And so the idea he's portraying here is that we cannot enter the sacred service of worship, as the saying goes, all willy-nilly, you know, without much thought, half-heartedly, nonchalantly, and, and, and in doing that, believe, well, God must accept our worship. That is not the case. Why? Because we are entering sacred ground. We're entering the holy place, as it were. Now, of course, this isn't the same as the temple. God's glorious presence doesn't dwell in a church building. We know that. Um, as it did in the temple, believers today, though, still need to be warned. Uh, this is the worship of God. We are worshiping the same God. He's the infinite God. He's the eternal God. He's the unchangeable, all-powerful, holy, majestic, and glorious God. And so Solomon says to you and to me this morning, be on guard. Be warned when you enter the service of worship. Now, if we're honest, that seems strange. You know, warn me about my sin. Warn me about temptation, yes. Warn me, as I will later in the service, if you're an unbeliever, yes. But warn me about going to worship. Do we need to be warned? It seems kind of a strange comment. And it seems strange, and it seems a little over the top, and the reason is, is because we, in our day and age, just don't take worship seriously enough. We, we, we tend to think that as long as we're here, and we're going through the motions, worshiping the Lord, it does not really matter how we worship the Lord. And so it's no surprise in America, and it's probably all over the world, but I can only speak for here. It's no surprise in America that we end up with a, a many worship services that resemble something more like a new New York City nightclub than a sacred assembly. You can just go online and just watch TV. It's a place to be entertained and not a place to be exhorted by the Word of God. It's a place to be amused and, and not a place to be awestruck by God's holiness it's a place usually that our ears are tickled and not a place to tremble, as it were, before his majesty. And so if we're honest, the reason we think it's over the top to hear this warning is because we have the wrong approach to worship. The problem is our attitude. 
And, and the truth is, such an attitude could be found in the worshipers of the most faithful and sacred worship services. Let's be honest. It could be found here this morning. And the point simply being, our attitude when it comes to worship matters. We may think that as long as we show up, as long as we stand when we're supposed to stand and kind of mouth the words when we're singing and, and, and pray and maybe even uh, pray like you're supposed to and listen to the sermon, no matter what we do, that God's okay with it and He has to accept it. But that is not the case. And so Solomon commands us to guard our steps as we come into the sacred assembly of the Lord. And so how? How do we guard our step when we come into the presence of God? And Solomon here gives a fourfold answer. He commands us to listen closely. He, he commands us to speak carefully. He commands us to vow cautiously, and then forth to fear consistently or continually. And so listen, speak, vow, and fear. Let's look at all four of them. First, listen closely. Rather than wanting our ears tickled, as so many people do, we should come with our ears wide open, ready to listen. We should come listening. Now, why? Well, Solomon here is assuming that people who go to the house of the Lord, that they will have something to listen to. And that something is what? It's the Word of God. First and foremost, the church service is a place for the reading and the preaching of the Word of God. Yes, it includes and must include prayer. Yes, it includes music and we must be singing. But first and foremost, the, the most central part is the preaching of the Word of God. Not because I'm doing it so I think it has to be the most important. Because it's when God Himself speaks to us. And, and, and so the first question we should ask as we're entering the worship service, as we prepare to worship, is am I willing to listen to the voice of God? Is my heart open to uh, scriptural instruction? Are my ears attentive to the message of the Word? You know, one of the things we do in studying the Word is not just something you listen to when I preach it or come to worship. Every day we're supposed to be devoting ourselves to the Word. And one of the greatest devotionals, really, I think, one of the most helpful is um, the Table Talk magazine. We have those in the narthex if you want to pick those up. Well, in one of those Table Talk magazines, I don't remember the year or the month, but R.C. Sproul addresses this passage. And this is what he writes. Do you enter public worship distracted by worldly concerns? Do the preacher's words fly in one ear and out the other, leaving no discernible impression on your mind and heart? Do you find it difficult to concentrate in prayer because your thoughts so easily wander? This is probably not a Christian. He says there's probably not a Christian alive who has not experienced distraction and coldness of heart in worship and prayer. But then he goes on. Tragically, however, many attend church week after week without realizing the vanity of their own worship. They might sense that something is wrong, but instead of looking inward, they cast a blame on everything else. The, the pastor isn't interesting enough. I know you, you don't say that. 
the music doesn't stir the emotions enough, or you fill in the blank, etc., etc. And he said, if these, uh, these complaints sound familiar, maybe you need to examine your own heart instead of trying to find aesthetic or sentimental satisfaction in those things that are not the essence of worship. A wise Christian once said the church would find true spiritual vitality if only it were gripped by the holiness of God in worship. And that's exactly what Solomon is driving at. He exhorts God's people to to stand in awe of God. Solomon is saying you should enter into God's presence ready to receive profitable instruction. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, he says, for they do not know they do evil. That's the first verse there. And so the first verse here points out there's really only two possible activities you could be doing here that I can be doing here this morning within the house of God, either listening or offering the sacrifice of fools. You're always doing one or the other. Either you will listen to him and worship him in the way he has commanded, or you will worship him in your own way, and therefore, as Solomon says, do evil. Notice what Solomon says here. These so-called worshipers who he's calling out as doing evil, they don't know that they're doing evil. It's not like they went in with the intention of doing evil. Their intention, I'm sure, was noble. They were being sincere, of course, but they were sincerely wrong. They believe their worship is acceptable to God. They want to worship him and believe what they are doing is fine, but they are wrong. And so if you don't want to play the fool in worship and you don't want to do evil, you will listen. Better is to listen. And it's not just a little better. Solomon says it's the difference between doing good in God's sight and doing evil in his presence. It's the difference between growing in your faith and living a faithless life. The Apostle Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so if you're not listening to the word, you're not growing in your faith. And so we're to listen closely. That's the first instruction. Second, we're to speak carefully. Look at verses 2 and 3. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness or or business and a fool's voice with many words. Solomon here is, is concerned not only with our ears now, we were to listen, but with our mouths as well. He's concerned not only with how we listen to the word, but also how we speak. And so he's moving from listening to the preaching of the word, and now he's going to talk to you about prayer. And, and, And Solomon is saying, God is not impressed with our wordiness. And Jesus said it this way, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, when Jesus says here, he, he, they think they'll be heard with their many words, is what, what he's getting at is that they think that they can manipulate God with their words. You know, they can go before him and, and try to out-trick him. 
and get their way. They believe God could be manipulated. And Solomon says, look, you've you got to be a fool to think that. For God is in heaven, you are on earth. This has to do with perspective more than distance, says one writer. God is above and beyond this world. He's beyond the sun. His, his greatness, his knowledge, his power exceeds anything this world has to offer. So he cannot be manipulated the way, say, idols were. Uh, you can attempt to uh, manipulate an idol, but you can't attempt to manipulate God. Biblical prayer doesn't seek to manipulate God. We must think before we speak. Now, the, the spirit of true prayer is summed up by Jesus. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it shall be done for you. And so our words should be few and our words should be biblical. Christ's words, the scripture, flowing out of the words of Christ abiding in us. And see, Solomon here will support his premise, his argument, um, with a proverb. For a dream comes with much business, or busyness, actually, and a fool's voice with many words. The proverb assumes that when you have all these concerns throughout the day, and all these things that occupy your mind, that you will have bad dreams, or you will be led to all these many dreams. That's a proverb. And then the one follows from the other. When we have been working hard to get caught up in our earthly business, we are likely to have strange dreams. Well, in the same way, fool, a fool leads, his voice leads to many words. And the one follows from the other. In chapter 10, Solomon will say, fools talk on and on. The point, we should not be fools. If you didn't figure that out, don't be a fool. We don't want to be fools in our worship of Almighty God. And so we don't, we don't want our words to stand in the way. And so when we pray, our words should be few. We must speak carefully when we pray. Well, third, you're to vow cautiously. Listen closely, speak carefully, and now vow cautiously. Look at verses 4 and 5. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Again, Solomon here is talking to fools. God has no pleasure in fools. And the fool here is the one who makes a vow before God and does not fulfill his vow. And Solomon here is not talking about a sinful vow, but a, but a holy promise to offer to God as a gift or a sacrifice, for example. Psalm 76 says, Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Or again, Psalm 50, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And so the point is obvious. It's straightforward. If we make a vow, if you make a vow before the Lord, you need to be sure that you do what you say and pay God what he's owed. It's much easier to make a promise than to keep it, says Phil Reichen. People do this all the time with God, especially when they're bargaining with him in prayer, Reichen says. We say things like, hey, have you ever done this? I, I know I have. And my guess is you have too. God, if only you will forgive me of this, just this one time, and don't punish me, and you know, I don't want the consequences of my sin. I swear I will never do this sin again. 
And then like a day later, dear Lord, I, I, I pray you'll forgive me this one time and that you will not punish me. I, I swear I'll never commit this sin again. Or, or Riken says, I promise that as soon as I get more money, as soon as I do, I, I, I'll give my 10% back to the Lord. I'll support missionaries, so on and so forth. And then you get more money. And you say, next time I get more money, and before you know it, you're committing the same old sin or being just as selfish with your money as ever. And Solomon is saying to you, it would be better if you had never made God a promise at all. Think of just some of the vows we make before the Lord. We make a vow in marriage. We promise to live together as husband and life, uh, wife, excuse me, till death do us part. Or when we bring our children to baptism, we make a vow to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Uh, we join the church. We promise to keep the purity and the peace of the church. We promise to support its worship. We vow to do that. We vow to submit to Christ under shepherds, the elders. And elders, when you become an elder, when you're ordained, you've made a vow to fulfill your calling faithfully. In all these ways, there are many more, of course, we make vows before the Lord. And the point is, we need to take seriously when we make a promise. And this is so serious that Solomon reinforces it in verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Breaking your vow angers God. And notice that coming up with excuses does as well. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. I, I wouldn't have done that, but. These people tried to get out of their commitments by, by claiming it was a, a mistake, making these lame excuses. Now, one writer has written, understand, when we fail to do what we say, especially what we promise to God, the Bible says that we are guilty of sin, that God will be angry with us, and that he will destroy what we have done. If we keep promising God that we will do this, that, or the other thing, but never do it, then we are more guilty than ever. Not to make a joke of this because of how seriously we are to take it. It's like, I, I promise I'm going to diet this week as I'm eating a candy bar. I promise I'm going to do this. Well, I promise, Lord, I'll do this, and I just go on doing the same thing. And so we're not only to watch what we say, but do what we say. We're to vow cautiously. And that leads us to our fourth point now. And, and it's the fourth point that I believe helps us to keep the first three. We're to fear continually or, or consistently. Look at the beginning of verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Now, the first part of this verse goes back to another proverb and talks about dreams again. Uh, and to not let our mouths lead us into sin. Many dreams are vanity, that is empty, that dreams are empty, they're futile. And so a multitude of words in worship is empty, it is vanity, it is futile. And, and, and so it renders our worship without substance. Instead of doing that, Solomon tells us to fear God, the end of verse 7. But God is the only, but God is the one you must fear. And so we're to fear continually, we're to fear consistently in worship. And if we get that correct, 
if we fear God, we'll be willing and able to keep the first three commands. If we fear God, we will listen closely to what he has to say in his word. If we fear God, we'll speak carefully knowing that our God is in heaven and we are here on earth. And if we fear God, we will vow before him cautiously because we do not want to invoke his displeasure. And so fearing God is essential if we're going to worship God appropriately. And so the question is, what does it mean by fearing God? Well, the word fear in Hebrew is yara, and it has a, a threefold range. It can mean dread or terror. And in the book of Jonah, we're told that those who were in the boat with Jonah were yara. They were fearful. They were terrified because of the storm. Um, in Deuteronomy, we're told that the Israelites were terrified. They were fearful, Yara, of the giants in Canaan and did not want to enter the land to possess it. See, fear understood this way is an affection of the mind that arises with this awareness uh, of approaching danger. It's, it can mean the fear of punishment or, or, or the fear of this pending doom that's coming. That's the first meaning. Second, if fear is to stand in awe, you may recall the story of Solomon. You remember Solomon it was confronted with two women who each gave birth, but one of the children died, and they both were claiming the live child as their own, and then he, he, he says to them, all right, well, give me the baby. I'll cut it in half. You can each have half. And what happens? Well, the woman who truly gave birth to the baby says, no, no, you can give it to her. And he knew at that point who was lying and who wasn't. And it, was, it showed great wisdom. And when all of Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in Yara, in awe, um, because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. And so fear can mean awe. Third meaning is to revere or to respect. Leviticus, every one of you shall revere or respect, same Hebrew word, his mother and his father. And so there's three possible meanings when it comes to the fear of God. And usually what happens is we say, well, this is obvious. It has to do it all. But the truth is, as one writer commentator points out, and I agree, and these three meanings, fear, awe, and reverence, suggest kind of a, a continuum we advance along as we grow in the Lord. And when we realize the world he has made, it's a movement along the following progression. We, we, it begins with terror, and then there's dread, and then there's this trembling, and then there's astonishment, and that astonishment results in all, in reverence, in trust, in worship, and obedience. See, if we understand who God is, who he is as he's even revealed in Scripture, then terror is the appropriate place to begin. In Hebrews 10, we read, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We lost this dread of God in our culture. Our God is an awesome God, and he is to be feared. Jesus himself says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
See, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you don't know him as the one who paid for your sin on the cross, you should be afraid. You should be greatly afraid of God. Why? Because a day is coming when God is going to pour out his wrath and your foolishness and not accepting Jesus will be exposed. See, we like to focus rightly, by the way, that God is love. But we also need to remember he's holy and he's just. And so if you have not come to the cross of Christ where his love is revealed, the cross that the world itself says is foolishness, if you have not come to the cross of Christ for your forgiveness, if you have not come to the cross to be reconciled to God because apart from Christ you're his enemy, if you have not come to the cross to be justified and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, If you have not put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for your salvation, you should fear God. You should fear meeting God. You should fear the wrath of God. You should fear the holy justice of God. You should fear the fact that he knows all things. He knows your sin, he knows your heart, and he knows you have rejected him and trampled upon his grace. You should fear terror, fear. But if right now you believe or or you have been a believer, if you do know him, if you know Christ, if you have come to the cross for your salvation, then you need to grow in your fear of the Lord. You should progress in your fear of the Lord. Paul says, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God, I don't have to fear the terror of the Lord. It's a lesson that was learned by the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And Moses is up on the mountain. And, and, and the people saw while he was up there the lightning and the thunder were told and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke. And they trembled with fear. And they stayed at a distance, and they said to Moses, "Uh, Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we will die. See, that's that's a fear of God, to recognize that his very voice will leave me not just breathless, but dead. But that incredible display on the mountain of God's awesome power wasn't meant to leave them there in that terror, in that fear. No, no, no. It was meant to draw them into this deeper relationship with God once they understood who he truly was, a relationship that resulted in their obedience. Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from uh, sinning. Do you hear what he's saying? Do not fear, but fear. Do not fear, but fear. They weren't to remain in terror. Rather, they were to progress along that continuum and have a, a reverential awe of God that what? That resulted in their obedience to God. And so even though terror is where you must begin when we talk about the fear of the Lord, for those God has called, for those who have been united to Jesus Christ by faith, the end of the continuum of the fear of God is trust. The end of that fear is love and it's reverent obedience to God. The book of Hebrews says, let us offer to God acceptable worship. It implies something, doesn't it? There's unacceptable worship. 
Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so that's what it means to fear the Lord. It's a progression that moves from terror to reverential awe that results in trust, worship, and obedience. And so fear continually, fear consistently, because a person who truly fears God is a person who what? They listen closely, they speak carefully, and they promise cautiously. And the fear of the Lord is not only the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of reverent, reverential worship. Well, let me close. If you're like me, and you hear that, and you know you fail, and you don't listen to his word, I mean, it's, it's easier for me to preach it than listen to it. Uh, you don't listen to his word. You, you often speak without thinking. <laughs> and you've made many vows without following through. And, and if that's true, and on the one hand, and then on the other hand, we consider the holiness of God and the unholiness of our worship. When we recall how often we have failed to listen to his word, when we remember how often uh, we spoke without thinking, when we recall after it is too late that we made a promise to God and then we failed to keep it, or how irreverently we've come into worship, just kind of hopping in here, can't wait till it gets done so I can go home and eat, we may wonder how God can ever receive our praise, why we're not just consumed by this consuming fire and see it's then. It's then, when you realize that, that you, you come to this place where you realize, I can't believe I have offered any praise that God would accept. I, I deserve to die, that you look to your Savior. And you look to Jesus, because not only has he forgiven you, he has done that. He's forgiven your poor worship. He's forgiven my poor worship. But he's also lived for us as well. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. That's true. And it also includes his offering of perfect worship to his heavenly Father. You ever think about that? In Hebrews chapter 2, we read, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's a quote um, from Psalm 22. We looked at Psalm 22 earlier, and they, it refers to the worship that Jesus offered in the temple and in the synagogue. Now, I want you to imagine, if you can, Solomon entering the temple or synagogue like he did on this occasion that he's writing, but now it's in the time of Jesus. And, and if he recognized it or not, if he saw Jesus there worshiping his heavenly Father, and he's observing him with all the other worshipers, and he heard him reading the Scripture. Well, there were other people reading the Scripture, and they heard him singing the Psalms, the inspired uh, hymn book of the Bible, the Psalms, and he heard him lift up his voice in prayer among all these other people. Would he recognize, I doubt it, right? But would he recognize that what he was witnessing when he looked at Jesus was perfect worship, a worship that was truly acceptable to God. It was sinless worship, perfect worship. Well, understand, by faith in Christ, that perfect worship that Jesus offered in the temple to God has been accredited to your account. It belongs to us. 
It's as if we ourselves offered it to God, says one writer. This is part of what it means to know Christ. It's part of what it means to be united to Jesus. Our imperfect worship is accepted by the Father because of the perfect worship offered by his Son. And see, as one writer said, when we know that even our worship is forgiven, that even our worship is forgiven, then we can approach God with joyful confidence. See, rather than saying, if I worship the right way, then God will accept me. That's not the message of this sermon. Get your act together. Do it right. You should. But hear hear, hear this first. Instead of saying, I'm going to come back and I'm going to listen and I'm going to speak and I'm going to vow cautiously, I'm going to do all these things and then God will accept me. No, 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 no. Rather than look at it that way, say it this way. I'm going to enter the worship service, and I'm already accepted because Jesus' death and resurrection. And now, now it is my privilege, it is my privilege to be able to come on Sunday morning, maybe Sunday evening, to worship God the way he wants to be worshipped, reverently and according to his word, guarding our steps as we enter the sanctuary, awestruck by the majesty and power and holiness of our triune God. You see, beloved, if you want to know the way to get right with God before ending worship, it's simple. It's to acknowledge your hypocrisy, my hypocrisy, all my other sins, and ask him as I enter, Lord, forgive me as I come into your presence, forgive me. And because I'm united to Christ, because I'm cleansed by his blood, and in the power of the Spirit, Lord, enable me to listen closely, to speak carefully, to vow cautiously, and to fear you continually. Let's pray. Our great God and our heavenly Father, we do indeed bow before you confessing that we fall so short of worshiping you the way you desire. So we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you that he paid for our sin and and clothed us in his righteousness. And we pray that you would indeed, as we do as we begin each service, forgive us our sins and at the same time accept our worship. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.